0: Hi, it's Ian Doyle, the writer and presenter of The Making of a Detective. It's been quite a while since we've been on this podcast stream, so before I get into the main piece of news, I just wanted to thank everyone for the incredible reaction we had from the podcast over the last couple of years. Thankfully, uh, I'm here to announce our follow-on series, which is The Kinahens. The Kinahens is a nine-part podcast, and it follows the 40-year story of Ireland's most feared crime family in nine parts. If you liked the making of a detective this is going to be right up your street. We have really great insight from journalists who covered the cartel story over the last 20 years. The podcast itself is hosted by Damian Lane who is a veteran crime journalist and we speak to the people who are very very close to the story, both Gardy and people whose lives have been affected by the Kinnons themselves. In early episodes we look at how a middle class man and his two sons from Dublin rose to the ranks of the drugs trade and not only conquered Ireland, but established themselves as narco-kingpins across the continent of Europe. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to episode one. This is the full first episode of The Kid Hens, but you can find more by searching The Kid Hens in your podcast app now. Enjoy.
1: On the 11th of April 2022, the Irish media pack sat tightly in Dublin City Hall.
4: You're very welcome here this morning, Cade Meanly Falter.
1: They were attending a press conference that would have massive implications for the history of organised crime in Ireland. Most in attendance had their suspicions on what the update was about. The night before, rumblings of international sanctions had made their way onto Twitter. And only one crime group fit the bill for such a charge.
5: The Kinahan Organised Crime Group have transcended international boundaries, distributing multi-million pound shipments of cocaine and heroin throughout Ireland, the UK and mainland Europe. It's estimated their illicit empire is worth over a billion.
1: A long line of officials were waiting in the wings to add their own stamp on the day's proceedings. Garda Commissioner Drew Harris.
3: And since the events, violent and tragic events of the Regency Hotel in 2016, and Garda Chicana has made it a priority to systematically degrade and dismantle this gang.
1: Two minutes later, he invited Claire Cronin, the American ambassador to Ireland, to address the audience. She didn't waste much time getting straight to the point.
4: And so today, the United States Department of State is pleased to announce a reward of up to $5 million for information leading to the financial disruption of the Kinahan Transnational Criminal Organization. Or the arrest and convictions of its leaders, Christopher Vincent Kinnahan... Daniel Joseph Kinahan and Christopher Kinahan
6: Jr.
1: In years to come, it's likely that this moment in time will be pointed as the moment when the Kinahan Crime Group's fortunes change for good. Many questions still remain, though. Who exactly are they? And how did a middle-class man and his two sons from Dublin come to capture the attention of police from across the globe.
2: He had dreams, we had dreams
6: for him. When I looked in that cot when that child was born, do you think that I envisage
3: for you that you die in a filthy toilet my in on your arm?
5: You think it's an exaggeration till you see the CCTV. And you see this well-armed, well-disciplined group of people Coming in with Kalashnikovs. And you realise at that stage things will never be the same again. This is, this is a milestone. He's dead. And this is who's dead. And he says, she says, Michael.
3: This is Michael, who? She says, your brother.
1: The Killahans is a production brought to you by the Irish Sun. I'm Damien Lane, a former crime editor who's been covering Irish gangland for nearly two decades. Throughout this series, we hope to bring you on a journey to describe the events that led to the cartel's global rise, the lives they have impacted along the way, and ultimately, what comes next for Ireland's most feared crime family. Episode 1, Silent Partner it's impossible to tell the story of the Kinahans without telling the tales of the first Irish clan to be considered criminal royalty and their legacy on the Irish drugs landscape. So to do that, we're going to bring things back to the north inner city of Dublin in the mid 70s. This area around the Five Lamps, Portland Row, Buckingham Village and beyond. It's a focal point for much of the events make up this podcast series. Mick Rafferty was born on Fitzgibbon Street in Dublin. Growing up, his family moved around the corner to Sheriff Street, where he would spend his teens and early twenties.
4: That's where I eventually got married from to another young woman from the flats. After a while, we bought this house uh, about 40 years ago.
1: Mick has lived in the north inner city all his life. He's been there for the community's many high points, but he's also seen times of real struggle.
4: It's difficult for people to understand, but in the Dublin of the late 60s and 70s, there was really full employment, and that was mainly to do with the docks and the dock-related activity.
1: Dublin's north inner city still had its issues, but it was a relatively happy and peaceful time for the area. Not many could have foreseen what was to come and how desperately it would affect the community.
4: Then containerisation came in and then quickly followed by putting the containers on wheels. So it meant that the numbers that worked on the docks collapsed very quickly and the necessity for factories to be in the docks
1: was no longer. As the 70s progressed, the situation got worse and as prospects dwindled, social issues began to rise.
4: You sort of had this uh, quite rapid descent from full employment into relative poverty in a way, you know, fairly quickly. But there was still the tradition or the culture of leaving school early, you know. In Sheriff Street, for instance, there was like a perfect stone that, that hit the area.
1: Things were to get worse for the inner city. Periods of unemployment had come and gone before. But a much more destructive obstacle was about to hit the streets. Heroin. Michael O'Sullivan spent much of the 70s and 80s working as an undercover detective. He would later rise the ranks to assistant commissioner.
5: By way of background in the early 80s, from a geopolitical sense, Russians had invaded Afghanistan and as a result, a lot of heroin from Afghanistan found its way to Europe. Um, there was a big heroin problem occurring in the UK
1: hearing the issues now taking place in London he knew it wouldn't be long before Irish criminals tried to get their share of the fortunes and one family in particular would instigate the whole crisis and they are integral to this story not the Kinehans nor the Hutches But the Dunn's The patriarchal figure of the family was Larry Dunn, a brother to thirteen siblings who hailed from the Dolphins Barn area of Dublin. In the nineteen seventies, Larry and his brother Christie had originally invested their time and efforts into bank robberies across the country. In recent years, though, times had been comparatively tight.
4: Because of the situation up north, there was very high security. So the conventional criminals were finding it hard to rob banks.
5: Larry Dunn had contacts in the UK and he saw the profits. So he brought heroin over and established a network.
1: Larry had long established himself as the head of the Dunn crime group with the nucleus consisting of him and his two brothers, Michael and Shamie.
4: So, air gangs had access to cheap heroin, and they flooded the area.
1: Within a couple of years, addiction had a major stronghold on working-class communities across Dublin, and the three brothers were making a fortune. A real family operation, but it was well known that Larry liked to keep himself in the background, overseeing the lot. He organised young runners to supply the heroin on the streets and in flats across the city. His hands-off approach earned him the nickname Larry Doesn't Carry.
5: It was it was a ready-made market. Um, ironically, one minute in the early 80s, there was no heroin available, and the next minute, it was everywhere. Um... It devastated the inner city-deprived communities. Whole families were on drugs.
1: Michael O'Sullivan is the first to admit that the Gardaí weren't prepared for the problem that was now facing the state.
5: Back then, the Gardaí corner was focused on fighting the IRA. It wasn't really focused on a heroin epidemic. It had no plans, strategic or otherwise, in place to deal with it. And it caught everyone, everyone in the country by surprise, including law enforcement. It was just this devastating epidemic and it it was getting worse and worse.
1: Mick could see firsthand the effects it was having on his area and his friends and neighbours around him.
4: In lots of cases, the kids would get it free and they were only kids and then they'd become addicted.
5: There was a survey carried out around 82 or 83 and Um, They compared the north inner city of Dublin to a corresponding black New York ghetto. In fact, per head of the population, there was a greater amount of young people between 15 and 17 on heroin.
4: And it became part of the culture, but we opposed it.
1: Many of the working class communities around the city mobilised to try and put a stop to the situation.
4: And we weren't sure how to uh, respond. And then we heard that there was a a movement of people on the south side of the city. But it was amazing because the method that they were using was very simple.
1: Members of the organisation would identify who they believed were selling drugs in their community. Through tip-offs and spotters. Suspected dealers would be called to a community meeting.
4: They'd present the evidence and they'd say to him, if you don't give up, we'll march on you and we'll get you evicted.
1: The group called themselves the Concerned Parents Against Drugs and momentum quickly spread.
0: The protesters were from the Concerned Parents Against Drugs movement.
1: Crowds in their hundreds would march on a dealer's home and all factions of life would be present. You'd often see local politicians marching with IRA members and parish priests, all together, marching with the aim of bringing shame upon the dealers. A local family from the north inner city were also present. The Hutches.
4: For as long as they were present, the drug dealers were reluctant, obviously, to physically attack us.
1: The movement was gaining momentum but Larry Dunn was left mainly undeterred.
4: He turned up at one of our meetings in Rutland Street School, and I was chairing it, actually. He came up and stood beside me and sort of domineered the mic. And he said to the, uh, the audience, which were honourable street traders, he tried to convince them. He, he said, you all know me. He was real plumage, you know. Well, you all know me. I'm, we're a family like yourselves. We'll just continuing on the tradition of street trading and dealing. I was a bit scared, but Tony stood up beside him and said to him, people in this room are honourable traders. They deal with food and things that people want and need cheaply. He said, you're a killer. You're dealing in debt and you're destroying the community. And it was great. I mean, people clapped and...
1: At his peak, it's estimated Dunn controlled 95% of the heroin trade in Ireland. He was a top priority for the Gardaí, and they had to take action.
0: Anti-drugs campaigners were out in force at Green Street Court again today, as they have been every time Dunn's appeared. This time, they had something to cheer about, as one of Dublin's biggest drugs dealers was sent to jail.
1: After an extensive undercover operation by Michael O'Sullivan and others in his district, Dunn was arrested for drug trafficking in
6: 1983. I'm a hundred years should right, a lot of them, yeah, and anyone belongs to him. There's plenty more Larry Dunns around it, and everybody will have to stand together and root them all out. That's, That's, true, That's what say, I yeah. say.
1: Larry Dunn was sentenced to 14 years, and to this day his case still remains in infamy. The devastation members of his family caused across Dublin is still being felt 40 years later. During his trial, as the prosecution questioned him about his position as Ireland's leading drug dealer, Don quit to the jury.
4: The famous phrase he used was, you think I'm bad, you want to see what's coming behind me.
1: In the years that followed, Larry's premonition proved more accurate than anyone could have imagined.
4: We thought initially that once the head was cut, (laughs) that that would change the nature of the problem. But it it was... uh, Another head grew and another head, and and the nature of the problem, there was so much money involved, it was comparatively easy. These people were able to manipulate the most vulnerable of people in society. So it was like a, a hydra, you know, you cut off a head and two heads grow.
1: And in many ways, that's where the story of the Kinans begins. The fall of one family crime group and the dawn of another to fill its void.
5: Really, it's the nature of the jungle that's out there. It gets tougher and tougher and you have to be tougher to survive in it. And it gets more violent.
1: In 1957, 20 years before heroin hit the streets of Dublin, Christy Kinahan was born in Ealing, West London. Daniel and Mary, Christy's parents, brought him and his two sisters up in a comfortable middle-class home. When Christy was still a child, his parents made the decision to move back to their native city of Dublin. Fibsborough was now where the young family would call home.
2: And they were living in a house on Charleville Road, which actually had been home to John A. Costello, the first Taoiseach to declare Ireland a republic. So, um, unfortunately, Christie was not cut from the same kind of material.
1: Owen Conlon is co-author of The Cartel, The Shocking Story of the Kinans.
2: He was expelled from St. Declan's School in Cabra, and his parents managed to find him a place in O'Connell's School on North Richmond Street, Now, that has some fairly well-known alumni, Pat Kenny, the broadcaster, Cullum Meany, the actor. But uh, Christie, again, sort of fell short of these standards and he ended up failing his leaving cert and leaving with just two passes, one of which was in English and the other in geography. So he was not an A student by any means.
1: Christie left school with limited prospects. He found love early on with a woman named Jean Boylan. From the Oliver Bond complex in the south inner city. In 1977, the couple had their first son, Daniel. Three years later, the family was complete when Christopher Jr. was born. Aged just 22 and with a family of four to feed, Christie made some attempt to make an honest living, working late nights across the city as a taxi man. This lifestyle was short-lived. The allure of quick cash was too much. Stephen Breen is crime editor of the Irish Sun.
3: Although living in a middle-class background, he just was was someone who fell into the world of crime because he lost interest in school as he grew older. And his foray into crime started with uh, petty crimes car theft, burglaries, and then it, it transpired that he was uh, very capable of, of getting involved in uh, selling cheques and uh, bogus cheque frauds.
1: These aren't the acts you'd necessarily associate with a future criminal mastermind.
2: He wasn't regarded as anybody serious by Gardy at that point. He was just another regular, low-level criminal.
1: Those early crimes certainly helped pay the bills, but as the 70s closed and the 80s began... Christie noticed a shift in the criminal trade. Larry Dunn sold his Ford Fiesta for a white limousine. His kids were at the best private schools, and the family had become regulars in some of the capital's most expensive restaurants.
2: So Christie saw this, he wanted a slice of it.
1: It's believed he used an associate to get an introduction to some local dealers. He studied how they operated and the contacts they were using. Before long, he was helping them organise shipments into the country.
5: He knew he could establish a supply network, and keeping himself in the background, he knew he could make vast profits.
1: Even from a young age, Christie was a serial user and abuser of people. He was always trying to build contacts that would move him up the ladder.
2: Raymond Salager was one of these people who was useful to him as a sort of a minion.
1: Raymond Salinger was a young man in his 20s who dabbled in low-level heroin dealing, although much of this was to fund his own addiction to the drug. He helped Kinahan establish connections to distribute the heroin locally. Born in the Oliver Bond Flats, only regarded him as a pawn within his game. Salinger's legacy within the story of the Kinahan crime cartel would be cemented in years to come, but more of that later on. By the summer of 1985, Larry Dunn was out of the picture, sent down for 14 years. And Christie's dealing operation was in full effect. Within a year, he would become Ireland's biggest supplier of heroin.
5: So, at the time, he wasn't very well known to the guards. Um, He certainly wasn't well known in the drugs trade, and this was a huge advantage to him. He decided
2: rather than, uh, which was typical at the time, to base himself in, in a working-class uh, block of flats in, in the city centre, he decided to go for a, a different angle and he rented a, a fairly middle-class apartment in Fairview. Posing as an English businessman, he adopted an English accent, which wasn't that hard given his upbringing in London.
1: Kinahan never lacked ambition. He knew the real money was in wholesale distribution of the gear to lower level dealers across the city. He'd use the apartment as a base to store the heroin before sending it out to other locations to be sold on the street. Like Larry before him, the hands-off approach appealed to him.
5: Chris Kinahan saw the profits, as I say, so he made efforts to establish himself as a kingpin and supplier, although a silent partner in the supply of heroin to Dublin.
2: He was driving around in a wet red sports car. He was well-dressed. He was, looked very plausible. He looked like a man who was, you know, would never be under suspicion. In
1: 1986, the Gardaí received a tip-off that someone in Fairview was behind the new wave of heroin that continued to flood the city. Michael O'Sullivan began investigating the matter closely.
5: He became aware that it was Chris Kinahan... Although I was equally aware that he, he went to great lengths not to get his hands dirty. Not a lot of people knew he was involved, that he was the man at the top of the heroin trade.
2: And they placed the block under surveillance and they saw some several well-known figures in the drug trade moving in and out.
5: Myself and another guy were dressed as electricians working in the apartment. And um, we identified the flat that he was in and we realised from our observations that it was being used as a centre for distribution or the nerve centre. We knew it was the head office.
1: On September the 14th, 1986, Michael and his team prepared to search the apartment complex and they made their move. Rabah Serrier, an Algerian, opened the door and was greeted by members of Angarda Shirkana with a warrant to search the premises. Stunned, he let the officers into the sitting room, where an unusual sight awaited Michael. Christy Kinahan was sitting on the couch, preparing to tuck into a ham and cheese sandwich. In front of him sat a small coffee table, absolutely packed full of brown, sandy powder.
5: The most terrible I'd seen to that date, and sitting nearby was Chris Kinahan. My recollection, when he looked at me, he went pale and he said, I'm as sick as a parrot.
1: Surprisingly, Christie made no attempt to shift the blame and admitted responsibility for the lot.
2: There was no attempt to hide any of the drugs. He was cutting them up in the apartment, but about £117,000, Irish pounds at the time, was uh, stored in a hold-all, which was just kept in uh, one of the bedrooms. So he was caught red-handed. There was no way out from.
1: Christie kept his gaze firmly set on Michael. It was an unusual feeling for the officer. He didn't speak much, but when the room hushed, he asked him a question.
5: He asked me if my name was O'Sullivan, and I said it was, He told me that he was on the lookout for me and the guys that I worked with. You know, it was a sort of strange twist of fate that he he had done his background. He had made inquiries as to who was proactive from a law enforcement perspective in the drugs trade.
1: For Michael, it was a small glimpse into what the future held for him and his colleagues. Christie wouldn't forget his face quite easily. A year later, in 1987, Christie's trial came before the courts. He was still a young man, and it was inevitable that he was going to be spending a sizable chunk of his 30s behind bars, but he felt he could minimise the spell if he was clever enough.
2: He had been arrested in the company of an Algerian man who was uh, an accomplice in this heroin-dealing scheme, uh, and... By the time the trial rolled around, about a year later, he decided to try and blame all of the, the thing, all of the, the drugs and so on, on this Algerian individual. And he went for the ploy of presenting himself as a heroin addict because he had seen that a lot of people who were involved in dealing had tried this tactic. Kinahan's
1: lies to everyone worked.
2: And when it came to sentencing, the judge said that because of the circumstances, he was going to receive a six-year sentence instead of ten.
1: Michael and his fellow Gardaí were left frustrated with the comparatively light sentence. The heroin problem was still taking over Dublin. But with good behaviour, Kinnahan would be back peddling his drugs around the city in a matter of years.
3: If he had been given a longer custodial sentence, it would have kept him off the streets a lot longer and therefore it would have curtailed his further advancement into the world of drugs. But if he had been in prison in Ireland for at least perhaps another four years, a 10-year sentence or even a 12-year sentence, that would have been a strong deterrent to others as well, but it would have also kept him away from establishing these contacts that would ultimately lead to him building this huge one-billion-euro empire.
1: Christie was pleased with his lenient sentence, but it wasn't all smiles for the would-be mobster. He was furious that he'd been set up by someone who knew about the Fairview operation. That an informant had sold him out to the Gardaí. This would be a recurring theme in the years to come. Paranoia and suspicion would become his friends. Not many people knew about the inner workings of the Fairview operation. Because of this, Kinnaghan blamed the tip-off on Raymond Salinger the addict who had helped him establish distribution channels to grow. He always treated him with a level of disdain, possibly because he was a drug abuser. But that was token Christy Kinahan, a man who felt he was above everyone else within the criminal world.
3: A lot of rumours were around the South Inner City because of the fact that Salinger uh, wasn't apprehended in the same way that Christy Kinahan was.
1: With help from others around him, Christie got the word out that Salinger was a tout and not to be trusted. Whispers travelled fast and Raymond Salinger had a tough decision to make. Even at that stage it was clear Christie had the potential for violence. Dublin was no longer a safe place for him and his family.
3: Raymond Salinger then left Ireland. He went to England and he would spend the next number of years there.
1: After fleeing to London with his wife and daughter, Raymond hoped to bide his time in the UK for a few years while things died down in Dublin, that perhaps the perceived betrayal would be forgotten about and he could return home once more. He'd find out in years to come that Christy Kinahan had a very long memory. It was November 2002 on a building site in London. Raymond Salinger was laying blocks on a small housing development in the city's suburbs. It had been 14 years since Christie decided to pin the Fairview arrest on him. In the years since, Salinger and his wife made secret visits back to Dublin to visit friends and family. But London was very much their new home. They were still living in moderate fear but thankfully things had got better for them. Raymond was now clean and enjoyed his time working in construction and grown closer to his wife and daughter. Things were looking up and as each year passed a small bit of fear would subside. The years getting to this point were filled with strife for Raymond and those close to him. Things weren't always that way. Salinger sometimes wondered how his life had turned out the way it had. As a small boy from Dublin 8, his youth was relatively happy. Niamh Brannock served as Minister for Education from 1993 to 1997. She spoke to us in September 2022, before sadly passing away earlier this year. Before reaching the doors of Leinster House... Branagh started her working career as a primary school teacher in St Audion's Boys' School based in the Oliver Bond complex.
6: Every classroom, regardless of what parish it was in, had about 60 children and low babies. So I was very welcomed by them, but the the scene was intimidating.
1: This period of Neve's life left a strong impression on her as she grew to love the children and their families one child in particular that stands out in her memory was a young raymond salinger
6: he was blonde, he was bubbly he was quite charming and he had little gangs because if you remember your days in school you had little gangs for the back yard he was in what you would call would be a brighter group of pupils And I remember him by name and by face, which makes a point about him of the other children that I taught, if you think of the 60 or so in the classroom.
1: Neve affectionately recalled a class trip to Dublin Zoo, where she accidentally dropped a fork over the fence into the rhino pit below.
6: And I had to stop Raymond salinger from climbing over to go into really one of the most dangerous animals in the zoo because he felt it was his job to get mrs Brannigan that was I was affectionately known as Mrs. Brannigan to get mrs. Brannigan's fork back so I still have a set of cutlery here, minus one fork that is somewhere in the rhinoceros. So that was the sort of child he was. You know, we brought all the children, but he was the first to try and leg it over into the pit.
1: Neve taught in the school for two years, and then her political career took off. Politics would occupy her life for the next 30 years. Sometimes during the day, she'd take a minute to ponder what might have happened to some of her pupils in St. Audion's Boys' School. What cards life would have dealt them as they grew older? She was unaware of the trouble Raymond Salinger had got himself into at home. Over in London, the Salinger's good fortune wouldn't last long. Raymond's wife Paula got news that every mother feared. She had cancer and the signs weren't good. In January 2002, the pair made the difficult decision to return home to Dublin. A decision compounded knowing Christy Kinahan, the man they feared, had now based himself abroad in Amsterdam as a narco-kingpin. They returned back to Dublin 8 to be closer to family, and Raymond tried to keep his head down and care for a sick Paula and their child.
2: By now he was a changed man. He was, he was not involved in, in drugs. He was a, a labourer on a building site. He was making an honest living.
1: Within a year, Paula had passed away. Devastating Raymond and his daughter, Danielle. It was a bitter pill to swallow. Life had been tough for the Salingers, but very little could prepare them for this.
2: He had a daughter to raise. And for the next two years in Dublin, he worked on building sites and um, kept his head down, kept his nose clean and uh, made an honest living. At this point, it was clear that he considered that the the threat from Christy Kennan had receded, that he was safe.
1: It was a miserable winter night. Salinger had finished a long shift on site. At 9.15 he went into his local, Farrells, to wind down have a couple of Guinnesses while a Leeds-Chelsea match played in the background. A dull enough game at half-time, he ordered a second point and headed into the toilet. He returned to his seat, to find a fresh point in front of him at the bar. Before the rim of the glass hit his lips, a loud flash rang across the bar top. Then another, followed by two more. Raymond was shot at point-blank range in the stomach. He stumbled from the bar as the 30 or so people were in hysterics around him. The lone gunman ran out the front door. Salinger collapsed on the ground, metres away from where he'd been sitting. He was dead before reaching St James's Hospital.
6: Well, I heard the name, I saw it in the paper, and it was such an unusual name. I felt it couldn't be my Raymond (laughs) Salinger. and popped this picture in my mind of this little blonde child you know he was the first to know the nursery rhymes like he was a bouncy child and i thought oh what age would he be now and could it be mine so on inquiries it was confirmed yes he had been raymond salinger who'd lived in oliver bond who'd gone to england i mean that was Uh, I had no idea that he would have come back.
2: That murder was subsequently traced to Christy Kinnan. He'd, He'd waited 17 years to avenge himself against the man who he blamed for him going down for his first long stretch in prison. And it was an early indication of how Christy Kinnan could bear a grudge and what he would do to those against whom he bore a grudge.
3: Although no one was convicted over that murder, the the belief is that it was Daniel Kinahan who recruited younger members of the gang to be involved in in that murder and no charges were brought, but I think it showed the ruthless nature and how determined Christy Kinahan was. If you crossed his path, no matter how long it took, he would seek revenge.
1: Next time on The Kinahans.
5: He was one of the first prisoners
1: that ever got a standalone computer. He rigged the phone up, which gave him internet access
4: and I don't think anyone ever did that before because he was the first one to do it. This man was quite intelligent.
2: About 31 million euro worth of cannabis in ecstasy had been sent back to Ireland after he took over from Christy Kinahan as the head of that drug operation back in Holland.
1: The Kinahans was brought to you by the Irish Sun. This series was hosted by me, Damien Lane, produced by Urban Media. If you've enjoyed this podcast so far, don't be shy, leave a review, help us get the word out there.